From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, I know you've spent quite a bit of time studying climate change and the ways in which companies, governments, and NGOs are attempting to address the issue. Well, well, yes. I mean, it's of huge interest to me. And I, we've interviewed people on this podcast about climate change, and I've read quite a lot. Obviously, there's so much work to be done to reduce the millions of tons of carbon that we're emitting into the atmosphere and actually adapting to the changes in the climate that we're seeing. And today's guest is working on another piece of the puzzle, the idea that even with all the work to reduce emissions, we'll still need to actually remove some of the carbon that's already in the atmosphere and will continue to be emitted over time. Well, yeah, that makes sense. So so when people talk about net zero emissions, it's the sum of carbon that's being emitted minus the carbon that's being taken out. So well, I'm interested to learn how carbon can be removed and how feasible it will be over time. Nan Ransahoff is the head of climate at Stripe and leads Frontier, an advanced market commitment for carbon removal, which we'll ask her to explain in a moment. Nan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's just start. What was your path to getting to where you are today? Where'd you grow up? What'd you study in school? How'd your career evolve to to your current position? I grew up in North Carolina. I developed an interest in climate in college after studying abroad in India and didn't really start to pursue it until my second job out of undergrad. I I did the the, the sort of consulting thing for a little bit um, and quickly learned that I was very passionate about climate and also wanted to try operating within a company. And so at the time I joined Opower, which was one of the sort of early stage, you know, climate companies that was VC backed back in uh, the 20, sort of first, first climate boom. I was at Nest a while later. Um, I worked at Uber on Uber Pool, trying to get more people into fewer cars and sort of continued to pull the, the climate thread. I eventually got into carbon removal after reading the 2018 IPCC report in 2019 and really rat holed on the question of, you know, how do we build a market for carbon removal in the absence of policy, given I am not a policymaker and I'm also not an engineer by training. And at the same time, we need a huge amount of it. So my my sort of background led me into climate, mostly through private sector endeavors. But I, I kind of haven't been able to stop thinking about the problem since I started. Opar is still around, isn't it? That, that was the company that basically showed your energy use in your household versus people in your neighborhood type of thing? Yes, Oracle owns it now. Ah, okay. Well, you mentioned carbon removal. That's what you're doing now. Why... Why do we need carbon removal? I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, reducing the amount of emissions, but why is it actually necessary to pull carbon out of the atmosphere? It's useful to answer this question in the context of the science. The world emits about 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalents every single year. We know from scientists that we're going to need to get that down to net zero by 2050, uh, if not earlier. And there are, generally speaking, two main levers that we can pull. We can stop emitting CO2 into the atmosphere in the first place, or we can pull out CO2 already in the atmosphere and oceans and store that somewhere permanently. So kind of doing it in reverse. The world is going to need a huge amount of, of emissions reduction that this is, you know, should remain the priority for, for global efforts. Roughly, you know, 90%-ish um, of, of the solution is going to be within that emissions reduction part of the piece of the puzzle. But in addition to that, we are also going to need to do a huge amount of carbon removal, roughly on the order of, you know, five to 10 billion tons per year by 2050, 
you know, the United States emits about 6 billion tons of emissions every single year. It's just a huge, huge number. And this is, again, to make that net zero math work and to pull out legacy emissions that are already, since we've already overshot this sort of safe level of, of CO2 parts per million in the atmosphere. Some people have said, look, carbon removal, isn't that like a get-out-of-jail-free card for emitters, right? Just emit, but as long as you pull it back out, that's fine. What, what would you say to that? Oftentimes, people call that the moral hazard problem. And, you know, ultimately, we look at the science and what all of these different scientists um, who've come together via the IPCC report have said, which is that we aren't going to get to net zero by emissions reduction alone. We are also going to need carbon removal. Now, if we had made the cha- the necessary changes 10, 20, 50 years ago, we would be in a different position. But for better, or for worse, we now need to do both. And so I look at this as a yes and. There are multiple parts of the solution set that we are going to need to pursue and carbon removal for better or for worse is just one of them to make math work. So if you don't mind, if could we geek out about the technologies? Like what does it mean to do carbon removal? You, I mean, you can plant trees, but that's a lot of trees. And so what what, what yeah. are the sorts of technologies that you know could work? So with you know, you mentioned trees, and it's useful to think about this, you know, five to ten billion tons per year as a portfolio. And there are some solutions that we already have today that exist, planting trees, soil carbon sequestration. And these are important pieces of the overall portfolio. The challenge with them is that they take up large amounts of arable land. So we cannot plant our way to the huge volumes that we have to do every single year. So really, uh, one way to think about this is what are the solutions that we need that we don't yet have today to reach that 5 to 10 billion tons a year? And I'll give you a couple of examples. What's really exciting about this space is there are an increasingly diverse number of types of approaches to do this. So one of the solutions is called direct air capture. These look like giant fans that pull in air and pull out the CO2 and then inject that underground into wells. There's another approach called enhanced rock weathering, which actually leverages what nature already does well. Rocks, most of the world's carbon is actually stored in rocks in the lithosphere, and it just takes a really long time for that to happen. So enhanced rock weathering is taking, you know, crushed up basalt or olivine, spreading that on fields and trying to accelerate how quickly that happens so that it can suck CO2 out of the air um, and store that permanently once it mineralizes. There's another um, approach called biomass storage and carbon removal bikers, and effectively that we have a company called Charm that takes waste biomass like corn stover that would have otherwise, if left on the field, degraded and re-emitted that CO2 back up into the atmosphere. They pyrolyze it, which just means heat it up without oxygen in in this um, machine, and then take it turns into bio oil, and then they can inject that back underground. There's a company that's doing kelp sinking um, in the open ocean. So just to give you a flavor of the the really broad set of technologies that can be um, that, that that sort of can qualify as permanent carbon removal. So, you know, you mentioned all these cool technologies, and I, I, I really want to dig into all of them. But nevertheless, is it possible to scale those up to the to the level necessary to get to five billion tons a year? You know, this field is so early that it's an open question. But I'll give you some some visibility into how we think about that. So, you know. Roughly right now, the world has permanently removed about 
you know, in the tens of thousands of tons, which is, you know, closer to zero than any other number. It's just a tiny, tiny number. When we're talking about volumes this big in this short a period of time, what is most likely is that there's going to need to be a portfolio of approaches. There's no one solution that is going to get to that to that number. And so what how we think about it at Frontier is how do we put together a risk-adjusted portfolio of approaches that can collectively scale to the to the capacity that we need in the time frame that we need it. But, you know, you're right. It's not a foregone conclusion that we will get to the scale necessary in the time frame that we need to do so. So, I mean, one of the things that we've studied at MGI are, you know, these learning curves across different technologies. And so, again, whether it's, you know, energy generation or, you know, Moore's Law in IT or in, in the biorevolution, you know, the, the ability to, to um, you know, scan as well as, you know, you know create genetic sequences. I presume there is a similar, you know, things going on in these climate, in these carbon removal technologies. Can you talk a little bit about how much they cost now and, you know, what type of cost you have to get to in order for, you know, the scale to, to, to start to make sense economically? The goal is to get these technologies as cheap as possible, right? If we just think about the need, that 2050 number, call it 5 billion tons a year at $100 a ton, that is $500 billion per year in, in, in market size that is needed to support these technologies. Global GDP is like $100 trillion. It's just a huge, huge number. So as much as we can cut costs, there are, are sort of like huge reverberating benefits of that uh, at, at the kinds of scales that we'll eventually need. Today, these technologies are really, they're all over the map in terms of cost, and they're quite expensive. You know, we've spent up to $2,000 a ton on a technology that is just getting started, our weighted average is probably in the mid-hundreds, um, mid to high hundreds. And the way that we think about cost is less what is the cost today, but rather what do we think that this solution has the potential to be in the future? We, When we evaluate any different technology, we are, are looking at a number of criteria that we've made publicly available. And one of those is, do we think that the solution, so first of all, is it permanent? We're looking for solutions that are more than 1,000 years of permanence, because when you emit a ton, it is in the atmosphere permanently, so you also need to take it out permanently as well. We are looking for solutions that are not constrained by arable land for the reasons that we've talked about earlier. And then importantly, we're looking for solutions that have the potential to be around $100 a ton or less by 2050 and have the potential to be more than half a gigaton uh, per year to help basically as a proxy for it. Do we think this can be a, a pretty significant part of the global portfolio? To your point on cost curves, the reason that many of these technologies are so expensive today is not dissimilar from many of the other industry examples that you cited. Technologies tend to start out expensive at the beginning, but costs come down over time as they scale. So we've seen this in solar and DNA sequencing and phones and TVs. The, the, the challenge is if these technologies don't have early customers, they can't get down that cost curve. And so Carbon removal technologies have been stuck in this chicken and egg problem where if you are a carbon removal entrepreneur, you're like, why would, you know, if you're a potential carbon removal entrepreneur, you ask yourself, why would I start a company if nobody's going to buy my product? And therefore, you know, their costs remain high. Customers don't want to buy, most customers don't want to buy technologies that are, you know, have, have huge prices, sticker prices in the early days. And as a result, you know, these technologies have, have really struggled to, to gain early traction to start coming down the cost curve. So 
that's a long-winded way of saying the lens that we take is let's not look at what they are today, but what they have the potential to be in the future. Got it. And you mentioned the hundred ton, hundred bucks a ton benchmark. Is that roughly what you know people paying on carbon markets nowadays, or how, what's you know, the reasoning for that? Yeah, it's a little finger in the air. It it is roughly intended to say we need technologies that are an order of magnitude cheaper than they are today. But whether it's fifty dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars, it's it, I don't think anybody knows how that price exactly is going to change over time. But directionally, we want it to come down as quickly as possible to much cheaper than it is today. Got it. You know, I introduced you as, as leading an effort, uh, which is described as an advanced market commitment. That's a bunch of syllables. What does that mean? Yeah, so this was an idea that we borrowed from vaccine development. The basic idea is to send a loud demand signal to producers and suppliers that there's going to be a market for the products that you're building. And I'll give you the example that that we pulled it from. In the mid-2000s, we wanted a, a, a pneumococcal vaccine for low-income countries. And at the time, pharma companies weren't incentivized to invest in uh, in the R&D and the scale-up of this product because the ultimate buyers are, you know, c- civilians in poor countries that may not be able to actually pay for the vaccine. So at the time, a bunch of philanthropists and countries came together and they basically pooled a billion and a half dollars and said, pharma companies, if you can build a product to this spec for this, you know, at this price for this group of people, there's at least a billion and a half dollars for you in revenue. And it worked. It, it was enough to motivate the uh, the pharma companies to invest the R&D and scale up to, to deliver this product much earlier than they otherwise would have. And so we're taking that same concept and we're applying it to carbon removal. The challenge with carbon removal is even more acute, I would say, than for vaccines where there's no intrinsic value in the end product. With energy, humans drive value from energy, but with carbon removal, if you are pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and you're storing it somewhere, there's no value of that to the customer. So why, it, it doesn't have a natural set of customers like many other products. And so as a result, if you're a carbon removal, if you're an entrepreneur, why would you build a company that is going to have no revenue? If you are a investor, why do you want to invest in a company that's going to have no revenue? And so, you know, again, our intention here is to say, you know, there is at least a billion dollars of revenue for companies that are building to this target set of target criteria that we've laid out in an attempt to say, hey, if you build this, we will buy it. Is the theory of the case that eventually some number of companies will feel either a moral or a financial or a regulatory incentive to take carbon out? and But it's not going to be economical unless those cost curves come down some. And so what, how do you, what is your promise, right? You've, you have nearly a, a billion dollars. Uh, what, how does it work? What, how does Frontier work? And then what does that lead to? Frontier facilitates purchases, carbon removal purchases on behalf of buyers that, that have joined Frontier. So imagine a set, of fr- a set of buyers has said, we want to put in $100 million to buy carbon removal over the next nine years. Frontier goes out and finds the best suppliers. We diligence them. We facilitate and author these contracts that are ideally bankable for the supplier that's in the form of an offtake agreement. And when tons actually get delivered, those tons get passed from suppliers back to buyers. And what's interesting about the Frontier model is that most of the most of the funds get get spent through these offtakes and 
from a buyer perspective, they are pay upon delivery. So you are not, this isn't an equity investment. It's basically saying we are going to pay you, you know, revenue for the tons that you are selling when you deliver them. But if the if the supplier doesn't deliver, we're not on the hook for them. Ideally, these are certain these promises to buy, these offtake contracts, the supplier can then take to the bank and say, hey, we have customers for this, the the tons coming off of this this facility. Can we have a loan? And so that is really, you know, the the theory of change here is acting as a early buyer through these legally binding offtake contracts, we can help pull in, pull projects forward in terms of speed, as well as pull in other forms of capital by providing that revenue certainty for suppliers. Got it. And is the form of the contract, like, if you take out a, you know, 100,000 tons, I will pay you X dollars. And, you know, so there's some division and you can say how much dollars per ton that is. Is that how it works? But you've got to deliver it. Exactly. So we agree on the number of tons and a price per ton. There's some extra nuance there, but that is the very sort of simplified way to think about it over some period of time. Got it. And in terms of Frontier's role, you're almost like a broker, I guess, right? You're just, you know, trying to match, you know, buyers and sellers of carbon removal. Is that how it works? Yes, although I would think about it more like a portfolio. So what we do is, you know, we are going and and building this risk-adjusted portfolio. So when new buyers join, they effectively are buying that portfolio of carbon removal companies. It's almost like buying into the S&P or something. And the the sort of what we've heard from 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 members is that, you know, most most companies that are spending time thinking about climate have, you know, three big things to do. One, they need to measure their emissions. Two, they need to reduce as much as they possibly can. And much of that is very endemic to your core business, right? It is, you know, it is very specific to you. Three, they need to remove carbon, which is typically not specific to them. And so we found that most companies really want to spend the bulk of their energy on the, the, the reduction piece, which makes a lot of sense to us. And so the removal piece right now is quite hard because this field is really young. You need a geochemist for, you know, to evaluate the one company and a geologist to another evaluate another company. We want to make it really easy for any company who wants to purchase really catalytic, high impact carbon removal for their as part of you know their net zero programs to be able to do that without much effort. So that's really where where we think that we're sort of hopefully trying to help more companies get involved because this field this field is really in the early innings and there's a lot more work that we need to do in order to build up the market to help the supply scale. Got it. So from the frontier perspective, you're collecting a portfolio of, of carbon removal. But for the individual buyer member of frontier, is it a set of bilateral agreements with the carbon removal companies? Is that how it works? Yeah, that is that is generally how it works. So there's some nuance in how you want to join. So we can also do that for you if you don't if you don't want to do that piece. But functionally speaking, yeah, think about it like minimal effort for you, so that you know you can buy great stuff, great catalytic stuff, without having to do all the diligencing and contracting work on your own. And so, what have you learned in in working on this? What's worked, and and what's been more challenging? Well, there are many things in both of those buckets. You know, I think that one of the early observations has has been that this field has benefited from a louder demand signal. At Stripe, we started making purchases from company from carbon removal companies back in 2020. We've done 
six rounds of purchases, and we recently did we recently did some analysis looking at how many high quality companies did we get in that first round versus our latest round of of pre purchases, and there was a seven x increase over just a couple of years, which you know is and there's a huge increase after Frontier was announced, and it's hard to draw perfect causal relationships between these things, but one of the sort of uh, observations and and reasons why we feel optimistic is that the number of companies and the number of high quality companies that are doing carbon removal is growing, and that is that is exactly what we need. We need to get more companies to the starting line so that we have you know a shot at building the collective scale of portfolio that we need to um, to to reach targets. So that that is sort of one of the one of the things that we've observed. Another observation is that the the diversity in the kinds of companies and the approaches that they're taking has increased a huge amount, which is fabulous because one, as we talked about earlier on, every single pathway has pros and cons, and it's too early to pick a horse. We don't know which ones are going to win. So, and and probably, you know, most likely there won't be a single winner. There will be this portfolio of approach. So it's very encouraging to us to see that diversification. On the demand side, we have seen New members join Frontier. We have seen increasingly larger purchases in carbon removal generally, which is exactly what we are hoping for. And at the same time, we have a really long way to go in terms of building the market to scale with demand. So some of the challenges on the demand side are how do we get from you know this billion dollars over nine years to $20 billion a year by 2030, eventually to hundreds of billions of dollars in the coming decades. There's still a lot of open question marks about how that's actually going to happen. And I think one of the sort of calls to action is if you are if you're a company with that is, that is considering um, how to have a catalytic impact in the space and ideally also meet your net zero commitments, you know, what can you do today to make commitments to have increase the chance that we have the carbon removal tomorrow that we actually need? to do what we need to do. Well, it's super exciting to see it, you know, an industry at the early part of the innovation curve. And um, if you don't mind, why don't we uh, do a quick lightning round of quick questions, quick answers for fun. Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite source of information about climate change? Okay, here's what I'll say two things. I think if you're just getting started, Watershed has a great reading list. And so that that's a good place to start. And then some great Twitter accounts, um, Zcal's father, Hannah Ritchie, there's there's a number of, of great folks on Twitter who are always always talking about kind of the latest and greatest. Whom do you find most inspiring in terms of people working to address climate change? I think the list there is long. It, it's you know the builders themselves. So like Tim Latimer at Fervo and Apoorva at WeaveGrid. There's a bunch of folks on who are actually sort of like building the solutions that we need that I find really expi- inspiring as including the, the the founders and the team of our carbon removal companies uh, like Peter Reinhardt. They're just fabulous. Then you've got folks like Jigger Shaw in the loan programs office. He's doing amazing work and actually helping these companies get the financing that they need in order to build the facilities. But, you know, there, there's a very long list uh, of folks there. And, you know, fortunately, that list is now uh, too long to all keep in my head because the climate field has expanded so significantly over the past couple of years. What's the most surprising thing you've learned working in the climate field? That it's tractable. Like, I do think that this is a tractable problem. It is not inevitable that we will solve it, but we have the opportunity to solve it. And I think that the doomerism line of thinking has really, I think we've gone too far with it and to the point of being demoralizing. And I think that this, you know, we know what we need to do. 
we need to do a huge amount in a very short period of time, but it is a tractable problem. What's your favorite technology innovation of all time? Oh my God, I have no idea. Of all time? Yes. I'm going to think about that one for sure. Well, let's see. I'm not sure how I'd answer that question. Maybe electricity? What would you advise someone who's just graduating from secondary school to study? I would advise them to pay a lot of attention to what lights them up and to pull that thread and follow what they feel personally motivated by, not about what they should should feel like they should study. If you weren't doing what you're doing today, and I don't mean today, literally today, I meant in general, what would you be doing? I think that this AMC concept has legs outside of just carbon removal and vaccines. And I am, you know, increasingly interested in what that would look like in practice, whether it's for, you know, steel or cement or hydrogen or problems that are completely unrelated to climate. But I think this is a, a pretty generalizable concept that we haven't fully seen. We, we haven't seen its full potential yet. And what would be one piece of advice you'd have for listeners of this podcast? In the context of climate, I think we as a society have an instinct to like overthink everything, sometimes at the expense of speed and just doing something. And I think the the discount rate to time is very, very high for climate. So not letting perfect be the enemy of good and moving forward quickly even if it is imperfect, is often, not always, but it is often the preferable strategy. I think we could do, we, we, we could play more offense than defense in, in all of our respective roles, I think. Thank you. Dan Rasselhoff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.